I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode of Good Faith Weekly, we're going to be talking about mental health. Also going to be talking about under mental health, uh, pastoral isolation, healthcare workers dealing with uh, some very strenuous uh, times these days. And so uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, what they're dealing with. And then also just in general mental health, how we're holding up during this pandemic crisis. And uh, that's going to lead into our third segment, uh, when we're going to be interviewing later on in the pod, two chaplains, Renee Owen out of Atlanta, Georgia, and Kelly Belcher out of North Carolina, and you'll want to make certain to stick around for that interview. That's in the third segment. In our deeper dive today, we're going to look at the uh, several states beginning to already open up their economy, even though the data suggests that they need to wait a few weeks. And then over this past week, there's been several protests erupt over the country uh, demanding that the economy begin to be reopened. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that in our second segment and in our deeper dive. So... Stay tuned. So, Autumn, how are things going uh, with you? Your family doing okay? We are. We are entering, we're in week six of our Mm -hmm. uh, quarantine isolation. And I don't know, there's sort of a heaviness. I think the reality that this is sort of our existence for the foreseeable future has really sunk in. I also have just heard from several people in my peripheral world, but I didn't realize that family members of theirs had lost jobs, um, have lost loved ones. And there's just, I don't know, it just feels kind of heavy. Yeah. This week is, you know, and I don't know if it's like a post Easter kind of blah, cause you know, everybody was looking forward to Easter and it came and we celebrated in new and creative ways. And then after Easter kind of had a week of, of adjustment and now entering into the second week after Easter, I think the heaviness is really starting to set in on folks. Uh, you know, the economy, uh, everybody's gotten their stimulus money by now. I know some of the written checks are just now being issued because the president wanted his signature on the memo line, which was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, everybody's starting to get their stimulus money, but there's an economic reality starting to set in. We're going into the second month of quarantine. Bills are starting to pile up. The reality of the situation is really starting to to get to folks, I think, not only when do we reopen the economy, but now they're talking about, you know, this virus until we get a vaccine is never truly going to go away. And there might be a second larger spike in the fall. Yeah, it's just, a. I feel like, you know, a few weeks ago, we were all sort of in, in one camp and it was camp, stay home, be safe, do what you have to do to take care of one another. And there's, you know, like you talked about the the protesters and there's sort of this divisive voice rising saying what are you scared of like get out there you need to start buying things let's open the salons let's open uh the stores and it's suddenly we're not all in this together mm-hmm. and you it's just trying to toe that line of what's the smart thing to do versus what's the wise thing to do. Right. And so I think it's very genuine and very uh, real that these emotions that we are all feeling, those who are advocating for a quicker opening of the economy, those of us who want to be more cautious and a more gradual opening of the economy, all of these feelings are very real and they're taking a toll on us. And there's even divisions within families, maybe even in households that you're being quarantined in. 
at this time. Yeah. Uh, and so the emotional state of the country, the emotional state of the family, of congregations is very, very real. And I know we've been talking uh, a lot about families and, and how people are coping within their homes and, and talking about good mental practices. But more specifically, we really want to talk today about pastoral isolation. I've been talking to several pastors uh, over the last uh, several weeks now, and it's really starting to sit in on them. Uh, trying to minister to their congregations because a majority of pastors are, you know, outgoing, relational type of people, enjoy the interaction uh, within with. Uh, Let's just call them what they are. They like their adoring fans. <laughs> well, I don't know who your pastor is, but uh, your yeah, pastor's yeah. my pastor. <laughs> But yeah, they they have their adoring fans, but they're just social in nature, and yeah, and it's it's starting to take a toll on them. They're feeling isolated. Uh, they're tired of uh, you know preaching to a screen uh, because preaching is very interactive. Uh, there's a give and take, no matter what tradition you come out of. Uh, it's very relational, and you so. Almost- to give them like uh like an old-fashioned laugh track but like a uh-huh like amen hallelujah kind of track for them we should market that at good faith media <laughs> exactly <laughs> next time uh jacob is on uh, behind the pulpit and preaching on a zoom uh we'll, we'll throw that in for him how's that <laughs> Well, we are givers. We are here for you, pastors. Of course, we could also offer this. True, true. They're really good at that. Uh, But at any rate, you know, I I feel for our pastors, uh, you know, continue to pray for your pastors and your pastors' families. Um, Try to support them any way you can. That's exactly right. Yeah. The families are, are struggling. Uh, because they're ready to get these extroverts out of their house. Uh, Don't you know they're just having to listen to sermons at the table? Oh, my gosh. Spouses and kids, bless their hearts. (laughs) We're going to market some good faith media earplugs. That's right. I like it. I like it a lot. So, uh, but then also, you know, the healthcare workers, there's been a lot of attention put on them lately. Um, and they're doing such, I mean, Talk about going above and beyond. They certainly have done so over the last uh, several months. But I can't imagine the emotional and spiritual toll it's taking on doctors and nurses and people really on the front lines that uh, are dealing with this. Uh, just the, the constant uh, of sickness everywhere, the constant of death uh, it just, it just got to take a toll on you after a while. So if you know anybody in the uh, healthcare industry, please not only pray for them, but reach out to them. Tell them that you're thinking about them and supporting them in uh, various ways. And, you know, they're having to be really innovative. We you know, hear a lot in the news about teachers who have to outfit their own classrooms out of their budget. But mm-hmm. we have a, our neighbor, I'm looking at our house, our neighbor across the street um, is a doctor in the ER here in Norman. And she, because they're just it's such a, 
a critical stage with PPE. She invested in her own um, mask, but it's a reusable one and it has like um, the filters are washable and it has like a gel around here. So it doesn't hurt her face when she has to wear it for a 12 hour shift. She said it's, it's really made all the difference in uh, patient care. She feels like she can get a little closer to the patients. And uh, we took a a distance walk all together on a Saturday morning and just listening to her and her passion for what she does. Um, So I'm, I'm trying to take care of her culinarily, which is, you know, how I take care of people. Oh, bless you. Bless you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, again, make certain you keep uh, your pastors, your healthcare workers, not only in your prayers, but uh, send them notes of support, phone calls of support. Just let them know that uh, they are being loved and appreciated in many various ways. And you'll want to stick uh, stick around because in our third segment today, we're going to be interviewing uh, Reverends Renee Owen and Kelly Belcher, both uh, chaplains, one in New uh, North Carolina, another one in Georgia. And they talk specifically about the importance of chaplaincy and uh, spiritual health. So make certain you stay for our third segment. Next coming up is our deeper dive. And we're going to talk a little bit about these protesters and what they are protesting and why I contend that this is an extension of Manifest Destiny. So stay tuned for a deeper dive. Are you looking for a new way to grow your faith? Nurturing Faith is offering five of their best-selling devotionals for only $12 for Good Faith weekly listeners. Go to nurturingfaith.net to find hope from Carol Bozeman Taylor, John R. Roebuck, Blake McKinney, Michael L. Ruffin, and Merrill J. Davies. The books are all available in the bookstore section of the Nurturing Faith website. And now, back to Mitch and Autumn. Welcome back to our Deeper Dive segment, and in this week's uh, Deeper Dive, we're going to take a look at what's going on across the country that's developed the last couple of days, really within the last week, as protesters have been gathering at state capitals, demanding that the economy be reopened. Many of them uh, demanding their right to go shopping, to get their hair cut, uh, some of them talking about real issues that are very genuine and authentic, and that is uh, the need for paychecks and, and jobs. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I, you know I, I don't know what the, the answer is there. Uh, there's not a secret formula, I don't think, but there is a formula. And yeah. there are serious people uh, talking about it, talking about how uh, we need to roll the economy back into play but at the same time, do it gradually and let it make making certain it is data driven. So what do you take about, what do you think about these protesters? You know, I have, I am working really hard to try to see things from the other side. I think that's Mm -hmm. something that, you know, makes us sort of unique is that I I used to come from a different background. So I, I can typically put myself in someone else's shoes or boots or whatever you know you're well wearing. you are a texan so wear those boots proudly that's right at the same time some of their arguments seem very individualistic mm. and i think that's hard when you're talking about such a weighty subject that's impacting the whole world it's impacting all of us and we're all hurting we're all making sacrifices i know some of us are making harder sacrifices than others but I just, it's hard for me to rationalize what they're saying when it doesn't square with what the science supports. 
Yeah, and you're touching on something that I think is extremely important and something that has been contentious throughout our history, and that is the balance between individual rights versus the common good. And there's always this delicate balance between uh, an individual's personal rights versus uh, the right of another. And we can talk about the tension of rights or the conflict of rights. Uh, one of my mentors, Brent Walker, when he uh, would lecture on religious liberty and church-state separation, he used to talk about, you know, when I swing my fist, where does my right to swing my fist end? Does it end at the tip of your nose? And I think that's, that's a reality that, that we are facing. And like I said, there are some very valid points that some of these protesters are making as far as uh, when will we be reopening the economy. But it seems as though they want to open the economy based upon faulty data and really driven by a passion uh, that somehow this epidemic or this uh, pandemic has been overblown. Uh, you still see uh, people on uh, social media talking about comparing this to the, the common flu, which is ridiculous. There's no comparison whatsoever. Uh, this ramped up so quickly. It infected so many people so rapidly and caused so much death so quickly. There's no comparison to the common flu. And yeah. my fear is that even though we are seeing a downward trend now, in the virus, both uh, the uh, afflicted as well as death, the death rate, what we may end up happening if we open up the economy too soon is another spike emerge. Yeah. And that's terrifying. And I think a lot of politicians are playing to uh, their base uh, trying to, more, they're more concerned about being reelected and trying to get campaign fund than truly taking into consideration the common good of all people. And we've heard it, and uh, you mentioned being from Texas. We've heard uh, from uh, Texas politicians recently talking about they would gladly uh, sacrifice their life for the sake of the economy. Uh, which tells you a lot uh, who their true God is. is. Is it God himself who values life, values every person, or is it the almighty dollar? And here in the good U.S. of A., my fear is that we are seeing it is, uh, it is the dollar. Yeah, well, we know how Jesus felt about that. It's the only time he ever threw a fit and flipped tables. <laughs> That's right. Maybe we need to start flipping some tables uh, and reminding some of these politicians. What's, uh, what's truly important. You know, I wrote a, a column this uh, past week, uh, last Thursday, on uh, April 23rd, entitled Manifest Destiny Fuels Misguided Protests to Reopen Economy. And the premise of the piece was that these protests, while they do have some valid points to argue, the, uh, the, the real theological and political background has been given... Uh, birth through this concept of manifest destiny, that uh, a certain segment of the world is chosen by God. Therefore, anything that they can, anything that they do, uh, whether that is land discovery or land acquisition or economics or political uh, ventures, anything they do will be blessed by God because they are the special chosen people and they are destined uh, to, to rule 
over others. Wait a minute. You mean they're not? <laughs> well, I, I hate to point out uh, the, uh, the, the truth of the matter, but the Bible has something to say about a lot of this. And, you know, Paul talks about it, that there's neither Jew nor Greek. Jesus certainly demonstrated uh, equality within his ministry, uh, always reaching out to the most afflicted, the sick, the poor, the ostracized, the marginalized. Uh, while he certainly stood up to those in power and spoke truth to power, it wasn't uh, to talk to them about reopening the economy or uh, that uh, there is a sense of privilege by those who are the ruling class. It was always, uh, we need to take care of the less fortunate and those who cannot take care of themselves. And he spoke routinely about that. And this, this idea of manifest destiny is still playing a part in our society today, that there is a segment of Christianity, evangelicalism, that thinks they are special in the eyes of God. And I hate to tell them, but they are not special. Uh, we are all special in the eyes of God. Uh, not only them, but everyone else is as well. And they don't get to make the final decision just because they wear the tag of Christian on their sleeve. Um, and so it, it really is disheartening uh, when you see Christians especially uh, raising weapons at the Capitol uh, and saying, don't tread on me. Sometimes I wonder if these protesters who claim to be Christian are really better, and I even hate to say the word citizen, but uh, better at attempting to be patriotic than they are living out a genuine faith following Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're completely right. And locally, it's been really interesting because we have a mayor who is, you know, working really closely with our local medical school and scientists. Um, but we have a governor who is sort of like, open her up. And uh, I know the mayors of Tulsa and Oklahoma City and Norman have all been like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and wait on that. We're going to do a little more research. We're going to see what data comes in. And it's interesting to hear uh, just the back and forth and the communication there. And so far, they've, they've kept it very you know, polite, I think. But, but they're also, like you said, they're speaking truth to power. And, and I support them in that. That can't be easy mm -hmm. as you know, just a mayor to, to speak up. I also noticed that our state capitol um, is going to remain closed where his office is. So. <laughs> well, of course, of course. You know, and that's the sad thing about it. When governors make these decisions, as well as anybody uh, with authority, I would even say on a federal, federal level as well, and we've seen this throughout the pandemic, when there is an action or there is not leadership at those positions, they pit everybody else against one another. Yeah. So the cities you mentioned here in Oklahoma, Norman, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, who are going to remain closed, are now pitted against cities that are around them who may be opening their businesses. Uh, and it, they've created this very competitive um, uh, environment uh, because then all of a sudden some of the, the local businesses here in Norman say, well, you know, uh, cities right next to us are opening up. Why can't we? I'm losing all my customers to them uh, yeah. and vice versa. So uh, this lack of leadership uh, is really causing a lot of uh, divisiveness uh, within states and, and within the country at large. I just don't know how public health is a political issue. 
Well, I mean, all you have to do is look at the debate uh, with healthcare in this country, uh, and it will show you that it is indeed a very, very tenuous issue. And it goes back to what is the healthcare industry uh, truly about? What is its what is its mission statement? What is its objective? Now, what they'll tell you is its objective is to heal as many people as they can and provide services for as many people as they can. But it seems like it's, it is unbalanced because it seems like the most important thing at times is profits. Oh, and, all the time. And yeah. so anybody who's had to deal with uh, an insurance claim that's gone wrong can contest to that. Uh, but you would think healthcare uh, would would not be an issue. You'd think uh, you know a pandemic would not be an issue. It'd be one thing that we came together on and and really worked towards a common goal. But it seems as though uh, you know it is becoming a little bit divisive. Now I don't want to be all doom and gloom because a vast majority of people, uh, looking at the latest polls, are saying that opening Friday is way too early. I mean, even the president himself, who has not been the most stellar of leaders during this pandemic, is saying privately or not publicly that states like Georgia and Oklahoma should not be opening up on Friday. He's been pretty unclear about it until they made a decision and then he came back and slapped him on the hand. Right. Which seems to be his M.O. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In our opinion. In our opinion, of course. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but anyway, you know, I, I do think it is, it is going to be causing some uh, strain within the country, especially if these states uh, move forward. Uh, you know, even if you put, uh, because all these states who are currently planning on opening Friday or Monday are telling local businesses and citizens that they must still practice social distancing. Well, all you have to do is look at the beaches of Florida last week to contest that that doesn't work. Uh, people will congregate. They'll talk to one another. And all of a sudden, we're going to see a second spike uh, here uh, in the month of May. And it's going to be on the hands of these governors who decided to, to open up their states way too soon and did not take uh, the data seriously. Well, yeah, I see a lot of people posting on Facebook, like, well, if you don't think the state should open up, then just stay home. Like, that's your personal right. And I'm like, yeah, but by all of you going out, you're just prolonging this thing. If we would all just stay hunkered down a little bit longer, it, it would pass, I think. You know, it would be closer to some kind of a um, a more strenuous testing, more available testing. I think that's the real issue is we just don't have the science that we need to do what it takes to really be safe. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of hypocrisy on arguments like that to say, you know, um, my being out and about isn't bothering you. And we know that is not the case because every human contact uh, continues to spread this virus and the virus lives on certain uh, uh, substances or uh, materials longer than it does others. And so them being out just their conduit for, for the spreading of the yeah. virus. And it's yeah. hypocritical to say, you know, my actions uh, don't affect, don't affect you uh, but I would imagine a majority of those who are making that argument would argue that same-sex marriage somehow destroys the sanctity of their marriage. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's just it's hypocritical. It's ridiculous. It's a, 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 yeah. a just a. It's interesting to hear that side of things say, "My body, my choice." Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It is. 
you know, it's, we also had our governor reach out to um, faith leaders in our state and say, I would like you to have people in your pews by May, was it May 3rd? He did, but he only chose a select, uh, a select group of uh, clergy, and he did not allow them to ask questions. Uh, he did invite a bunch of clergy on a conference call, but did not permit them to ask questions. They were silenced. He did not invite all of the, the all you know all the clergy. There's obviously no way to do that, but it was a select group that he chose. Uh, the Oklahoma Conference of Churches here in the state spoke out. Uh, Reverend Shannon Fleck spoke out on the media here, saying that you know she doesn't think that churches are ready to return. Uh, you know, full, you know, full services, uh, very soon. And the governor has, that's fallen on deaf ears as far as the governor's concerned here in Oklahoma. And I will just tell you, um, there is no way church people could practice social distancing within a congregation. We are huggers. We are handshakers. Um, our kids are going to share donuts like across the, the pew with each other. There's just no way. We're too touchy-feely, especially as Baptists. We have to stay home. Right. Can you imagine trying to uh, teach a kindergarten Sunday school class with the kids staying six feet apart? No, uh, our kids lick one another. Josh and I <laughs> through second grade, and I have hand to God said, please quit licking your friend. <laughs> These are things I say. That's not social. It's not. It's not possible. Uh, so we'll just stay home and keep having our Zoom Sunday school. I agree. Its own kind of nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, you know, this is far from uh, being over. Uh, still, a lot of, to be debated. I do hope that politicians and leaders uh, listen to the scientists, the healthcare workers, and follow the data, and not try to follow their base in reopening the uh, the economy way too soon because I do believe if they do so, there's going to be a second spike. Uh, more deaths will follow, uh, and it's going to be on their hands if that takes place. Next, we're going to be interviewing the reverends Kelly Belcher and Renee Owen, and we're going to talk about spiritual and mental health. Stay with us. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and today we are very honored to have two important guests with us, both Reverend Renee Owen and Reverend Kelly Belcher. Renee is Executive Director at Spiritual Health at Wellstar Health System in Atlanta, Georgia, and Kelly is a hospice chaplain. Both of them are endorsed by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and we are glad to have both of you with us. Welcome to the pod. Renee, how are you doing? It's really good to, to join you all today. Really appreciate the opportunity. Good. Well, Welcome. we've been uh, starting all of these uh, interviews with pretty much the same question, and that is, how are you feeling? How are your family members feeling? Everybody okay in your households? We're doing good. Um, and uh, Tommy, my husband, Tommy and I are doing well. Um, we're fortunate to be in an industry where we continue to work. Um, so that's a blessing, and um, that has brought some some concerns. But we we are healthy and well. Good, good to hear. And we are too. My husband Philip and I are both working, and so are both of our children. One's in Charlotte, and one's in Kansas City. And we're very grateful that we can still get up and go to work every day. Yeah, that's outstanding. Well, both of you are involved in some incredible ministry uh, with uh, the healthcare system in Atlanta and then uh, the hospice chaplaincy in North Carolina. 
Um, Renee, let's start with you. Um, when this pandemic began to really surface here in the United States, um, how have you seen your ministry evolve over this time? It's a great question. When the crisis first started, I have to say that one of my biggest concerns was the safety of my staff. So we have 11 hospitals across the Atlanta area. Um, <clears throat> and in those 11 hospitals, we, we have chaplains in all of them. And one of my biggest concerns in the very beginning was how do we continue to do ministry and offer the essential spiritual care and keep our staff, our chaplains safe at the same time. Um, we also were aware that even in the beginning of the crisis and as the crisis continued, that we were going to be short on potentially and, and, and short on PPE, the personal protective equipment, the masks and the gloves and the, the gowns. And we wanted to be good stewards of those things because we know that that's essential equipment for our doctors and nurses to go into those rooms to care for our, our team. And so um, we very quickly had to start thinking about how do we continue to do spiritual care? So much of what we do as chaplains is relational. And how do you keep a spiritual connection and a relational connection when you have to be physically at a distance from someone? Right. So very quickly, we had to look at how do we continue to do that? Wow, what a challenge. And uh, did you come up with policies and procedures to, to on, on the go to figure out how to do that? We did. We, we started really quickly looking at, you know, how do we maintain that connection? Um, and I would say one of the first things that we implemented was no isolation rooms. And that was a struggle for us because as hospital chaplains, that's where we go. You know, the, the event happens or the crisis happens and we run to it. Um, we're there to be the calming presence in the midst of the crisis, in the midst of the illness. And we are the ones who come to the bedside. So it was a, it was a big struggle and continues to be a big struggle for us to not be inside those rooms. One of the first things that we put into place was not, no chaplains were to enter isolation rooms. So what our chaplains started doing was standing in the doorway and having conversations with patients, hmm. um, standing in the doorway and praying for patients. Um, standing in the doorway and looking through a window while we were on a phone with the patient and then so that the patient could physically see us mm -hmm. and then the chaplain going to a private space to have to continue a phone conversation with that patient. Wow. Um, we quickly started utilizing telechaplaincy to talk, to make connections with families who were either unable to come to the hospital or due to restricted visitation guidelines were asked to not come to the hospital. Wow. And Kelly, in hospice uh, chaplaincy, I mean, that is one of the most sacred, intimate moments in a person's life and in the life of their families. How has this affected your ministry? Well, all of the things that Renee said are things that we are dealing with as well in hospice chaplaincy. We generally do work in people's homes or in uh, care facilities like um, skilled nursing centers. Um, and we do have an inpatient facility for uh, folks who need to come in and get skilled care. And in all three of those settings, it's been terribly difficult to figure out how we are going to come alongside 
when presence is really the main way uh, chaplains provide care. It's about uh, modeling that we believe there is a presence of a Holy Spirit with that person and with their family. And so to be present with them is job number one, really, for chaplains. Not to be able to do that has been daunting. And I've, we discovered quickly, and I work on a team of several other chaplains for which I'm very grateful, we discovered quickly that first we have to take care of our own grieving, our own sense of shock and disorientation, our own sense of powerlessness, our own sense of not knowing what we're going to do and how we're going to keep doing it, and that we have to continue to uh, reinvent the wheel of chaplaincy every day as we move forward day by day with different patients and different families and different care needs. So we have to take care of ourselves first uh, before we're even able to turn our attention to what the patients and families need. And then also we have been uh, taking more and more care of our staff. Our nurses and doctors, our CNAs, our social workers are really afraid often to be going in and providing patient care that's very intimate. And so um, we're taking care of their fear, trying to help them figure out how they're going to do that. Um, the PPE is a perennial problem, and uh, so far we've had what we needed. Uh, but I'd say just taking care of people's fear and figuring out ways to be present are the two main things we continue to struggle with every day, and we have to do it new every day. So what has the response been like, Renee, to that sort of innovative way of connecting with people? We've had a really positive ex response um, in talking with some of our chaplains who have been making those phone calls to families. One of my chaplains shared that she had a phone call with a family who was unable to come to the hospital and that it was one of the most profound experiences she's ever had with a family. They were wow. so grateful for the opportunity to, one, connect with someone who had physically seen their loved one, mm -hmm. um, and then to receive the support over the phone. They, they were so grateful to, to hear a chaplain's voice, to hear those words of comfort, mm -hmm. um, and it became, it became a different way of being present. As, present, as Kelly said, presence is essential. Yeah. to communicating um, the divine and God's spirit with patients and families, just to be physically present with them. So it's, it's been recreating um, and reframing how we're present with people. And so for this one particular family that, that um, I'm thinking of, they were grateful for sort of a new presence um, with, with their loved one and with, the, with them over the phone. I love that. And so Kelly, you said you're speaking to those fears of the staff. Um, what are you saying? Because we're all a little bit scared right now. I think we're all afraid for ourselves personally. Nobody wants to catch this virus. And even if uh, we feel like we're young and healthy and we could sustain it, we certainly don't want to give it to our families or feel like we are going to carry it from one place to another. And so first of all, our team has been really worried that they would be able to keep their patients and families safe. And so, so we've isolated a lot in a lot of different ways. And isolation is a spiritual problem. So in order to provide the care we need to provide, we're creating a spiritual problem to do it. And I think we're also um, having to acknowledge among our staff that they feel isolated as well. Some of them have sent their children to live with grandparents. Some of them have taken their children out of care and uh, 
spouses who are not able to work anymore are at home with them and they're isolating themselves from their children to make sure they don't uh, uh, spread virus. So um, in lots of ways, we feel alone and that um, that's really one of the biggest things we've been dealing with too. You know, one of the things that uh, we've noticed uh, in um, talking to a lot of people, chaplains, uh, ministers, pastors, uh, educators, there are a lot of stories out there of heartache and of fear of, the, of getting the virus, uh, heartache of people who have gotten sick, people who have passed away. Um, but also we're hearing stories of hope. And we're so inspired by chaplains, by uh, first responders, by healthcare workers that are making such great sacrifices, as well as putting themselves on the line to make certain the rest of us are staying healthy and preserving life. What are some of the things that have given you hope as this pandemic has erupted? Well, I've made a lot of phone calls to patients and families, and I've been uh, overwhelmed at how beautifully they take care of each other, um, how, how this has sort of called out something in them that's made them step up and do things that are hard to do that they never thought they'd be able to do. Um, and the hospice team, doctors and nurses, social workers, chaplains, CNAs, all of us are, are, are kind of accustomed to dealing with the death moment and with the very last hours and days of life and with opening up a safe place for people to approach that and to receive it and to be at peace with it. And so I think, um, I think that's bearing fruit because the care we've given to these patients and families all along for months and sometimes years um, has enabled them to be able to do things for each other that we aren't present to do with them or that we're helping them do over the phone, um, which has been a beautiful thing to see. That's very well said. And Renee, what gives you hope? Some of the things that it's given me hope is the, the way the communities have responded. We've had so many um, community members who have reached out to our chaplains, who have reached out to our team members. There are um, I think there are, there are videos on social media that have been going around the country where people in the communities have been getting in their cars and they have been driving around the hospitals. And that's been happening at our Wellstar facilities. And it's been beautiful. It's mm -hmm. been so encouraging and helps the staff to know that they have people cheering them on, mm -hmm. that there are people who want to stay connected and they figured out ways to do so. Um, I think there was one instance where at one of our hospitals, the security officers had to go out and, and ask <laughs> some of the lines of cars to, to make way so that employees could get out to go home. <laughs> and, it was, and it was a good problem to have. Sure. And it was just the, you know, the flashing of their lights and the honking of their horns and, and just being present to let everyone know that, you know, we're, we're in this as a community, that we're, we're not alone. And in this moment of difficulty and isolation, it really, it really calls each of us to bring to mind that belief we have that there is a Holy Spirit that binds us together, that keeps us connected, even when we're physically apart from each other, that there is a crisis that, that gives you an opportunity to really press your faith to the wall and, and live what you believe 
Um, that's not all bad. <laughs> there is something redeeming in that. That's very, very well said. So Kelly, I'll start with you. And then Renee, you're, you're teed up for the next one. Um, we like to ask, because our motto at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. And we fancy ourselves sort of a megaphone for others so that you can, we can be that voice for you and help your voice go farther. And that's what we want to do with this podcast. And your stories are so important. So to close the podcast, we'd like for you to tell us what your more to tell is. Well, as a hospice chaplain, I see every day that death is a beautiful moment. And it, people don't even know how beautiful they are. And to be able to witness that and to be present with that is a great joy for me. Uh, and I also am really uh, grateful for all of the moments of total hilarity and silliness and ridiculousness and jokes. Um, I'm watching sheep videos and I'm gobbling like a turkey with my team because uh, we are going to live through this and we're going to come out on the other side and there is great hope in it. Wow, very that. well said. Now you got to live up to that, Renee. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, it's, it's, it's about, um, we are, the mantra that I keep going back to throughout this crisis is we are hospital chaplains. We are chaplains. This is who we are. This is what we do. We bridge the gap. We bring um, the divine into presence with, with others. And we're invited to be a part of that sacred moment. Um, it, it's such sacred work that, that we're invited to be a part of. And to be able to continue to do the sacred work in the midst of a crisis really is um, a, a, an awesome journey. It, even redefining how we bridge that gap and how we're present with people is um, really is an incredible opportunity. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Renee Owen and Kelly Belcher, uh, who are also part of Good Faith Media. They serve on our board of directors, and we are glad that thank they do. You. And uh, we are very grateful for that. Until next week, thank you for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Stay safe and God bless.